Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill? For me? That's right. The Little Pink Pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flibanserin. Learn more about The Little Pink Pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved Little Pink Pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer. Because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It... I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. Happy November. A month I'm shockingly okay with, given my Jeremiah's about fall. <laughs> what do you love about November? I love Thanksgiving break. I love starting off a break mm. with like a big celebration. You know, you got the dinner, etc. And then you've got the yeah. serene next few days to hang out and do nothing. This year I'm going to uh, Puerto Vallarta, but I usually just like hanging out and watching. 10 prestige movies that are out. If we got rid of the word fall and just, you know, replaced it with the word prestige, I'd be pretty thrilled with this season. <laughs> the prestige. Um, I would say that I enjoy November too. I enjoy November as a person who, you know, I like making plans with friends. I like, you know, like scheduling things, etc. Which is, of course, an exclusive activity to November. That's correct. <laughs> I'm just saying what's November hits. It's really a month where it's Thanksgiving's coming. That kills about a week and a half, two weeks of plans. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Everything falls around that. Yeah. Right. It's been a lot of, um, with making plans with people, it's been, well, let's circle back after Halloween because, first of all, gay Halloween is three weeks. I can't believe Halloween still hasn't happened yet as of this recording. I've celebrated it 16 times. <laughs> it's today. Yeah. <laughs> it's today is Halloween. Uh, but now it's, Oh, well, do you want to make plans? There's about two weeks to make plans now. Right. <laughs> There's like three days you can see friends. <laughs> yeah. Three days, and then Thanksgiving hits, and then you come back for Christmas. And New York is a bit different than L.A., at least, because in L.A., the entire city basically shuts down. It's shocking. We just decide, like, nobody needs to work. Yeah. <laughs> We're not buying anything. We're not making any TV shows. No movies are shooting. It's Everything is done. But here, people will still be working. No. So New York has the nerve to um, have people with lots of different occupations. We, we, we haven't branched out past, you know— um, set decorator here. Uh, that's most of everybody you'll meet. I just want to say also that I'm really discombobulated this episode because I have to change my entire keep it from the keep it segment because it was going to be a keep it to you based on a tweet you wrote. Um, and I misread it, which was, I thought you were saying, I thought someone said, 
what are your fa- three favorite Michael Jackson songs of all time? And you picked three songs from mm. Invincible. I was like, girl. But the actual tweet was, what are your three favorite songs from Invincible, which was released on this date some years ago? Um, and I was like, who the fuck are you trying to impress with my favorite Michael Jackson song of all time is Break of Dawn or whatever? I was like, you think Janet's going to call you up and be like, thank you so much for loving Break of Dawn. I love it too. Just as I love all my fans. Okay, I will say, though, that in that list, I have Butterflies, which could possibly make my top three Michael Jackson songs. Oh, my God. I love that song. I think that's okay. But I also will say Invincible is a great album. Well, it's definitely better than Dangerous, which I think is all over the place, and (laughs) and yet also sounds too much the same. And also, that's when he got way too into ballads, which is my least favorite thing he does. Um, yeah, and it starts out with Jam, which is great, and then the rest of the album was very loud. Yes, yeah, very like he got very obsessed with tons of production. Like something was like mm-hmm. ch- changed about the music after uh, Bad and stuff. Well, and and stayed that way throughout the nineties. Um, yeah, I will say you rock my world though. To uh, borrow a word you brought back recently, a song with swag, which wasn't always Michael Jackson's mm. thing. Yeah, that is. That's sort of like a really, I remember that song coming out and it being like, oh, there's new Michael Jackson music. I it be- was shocking. Yeah, and there was a debut of it too. I remember being like, oh, you have to watch the video because Chris Tucker's in it and Marlon Brando's in it. Mm-hmm. Marlon Brando getting paid like eight figures to turn around in a chair. He was like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, here are my conditions. I'm, I'm waiting to die and you have to pay me <laughs> $20 million to do a damn thing. Well, you know. Pine cost a lot of money. Yes, exactly. You know, he was he was getting that funeral together. <laughs> I would say, whatever happens is a great underrated song. Um, there's also the song Invincible and Heartbreaker. Good songs. The opening Unbreakable. I think it's a good underrated album, and I think that yeah, people sort of think about Dangerous a lot just because it's from the '90s, and they think. All of his stuff from the 90s was perfect. It's, but yeah, it's still Invincible in the heyday a, of him, too, right? Um, it's a good album. Um, the ballads are good on this album. They're better. Yes, definitely. Um, no, because if I had to pick my favorite non-single of all time from Michael Jackson, I think it's Baby Be Mine from Thriller. Are you a fan of that? Mm. That's a good song. I'm sh- okay. I'm shocked it's not played way more often. I, I'm still getting over the fact that the first single off Thriller um, was... The Girl Is Mine by Paul McCartney and Michael Awful Jackson, song. which may be the worst thing either of them ever put out. And by the way, <laughs> you know Paul got kooky in the 80s, so there's a lot of options here. Um, but uh, that song... Paul probably that, released an album today. Precisely. No, but that particular song uh, is one of the two non-singles on that album, which is so, which speaks to the quality of Thriller. But anyway, I can't drag you for that, so I'll have to find a new Keep It by the end of the episode. Well... What was your Halloween costume this year? Let me drag you for something. Oh yeah, I had, I had, I was Chun Li, but uh, mm-hmm. and I have two versions of it. I think I'll still wear the jumpsuit version tonight. I think I brought this up last episode. Mm-hmm. But I also went to a warehouse party, and I literally decided I cannot be wearing this polyester situation for more than five seconds. I'm like a dog in one of those mm-hmm. Olaf costumes. I, I have to get out of this fucking thing. Um, so I just wore a singlet mm-hmm. since it made more sense. Mm. I wore. Um, I was Mad Hatter on Friday. Wow. A uh, very Tom Petty video. Yeah. Well, the party was for my friends, Jared and Charlie's um, party called Vanity Scare. 
uh, which was based on, you know, the Thackeray novel Vanity Fair. Uh-huh, I'm uh, familiar. Lovely pun. Victorian-era themed, allegedly. Some people got it. Oh. Uh, they didn't exactly get it because <laughs> the invite said Marie Antoinette meets Dracula, and those are two different time periods. Uh, Marie Antoinette, that's about the 1790s, motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, he's British, and so they just say things. Right. Well, uh, well, it's just like just, all of world history is like congealed for some people. I, I bring this up all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I went to a Barry's boot camp class and the teacher goes, and all the music today is 80s. And then they put on Stairway to Heaven. I said, can we open up a textbook? What is happening <laughs> to this universe? Famously, Led Zeppelin is in U.S. history textbooks. Yeah. By the way, do not make me work out to the vocals of Robert Plant. Please don't. <laughs> that is like... Uh, Side note before I get back to Halloween, that is like the worst part of the gym that I go to, not my regular one, the one where my trainer is at. The owner of the gym loves working out to 80s rock. Oh, no. I I am just at the gym hearing um, Def, Led Zeppelin Def all Leopard. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hearing Jeff Leppard. It's like, wh- where are we? I, I say the movie Rock of Ages and the musical Rock of Ages should be called Gym Teacher's iPod. <laughs> um, but I did Mad Hatter, which was lovely because like it was a lot of color yeah. in that outfit. So that was fun. And then Saturday, I was um, a corpse groom. I basically just had like white face paint makeup. Uh, a blazer, uh, nothing underneath it. And I wore shorts because I was at a warehouse party. I was at the final Unter, which is a party that's gone on for six years in New York City. I know about that um, party because no one would shut the fuck up about it this weekend on social media. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> how do I mute this one. fucking thing? Yeah. It was the final one called, uh, you know, Unter Death. Uh, and it was, you know, funeral themed. And it's sort of like very... European um, rave where it's it's like a fucking 18-hour party. Mm. I mean, it started at around midnight and it went till 6 p.m. Oh, godless. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, this is the a concern gay people have when they're dressing up for Halloween. You know, it's like you want the elaborate costumings and some people stick with them and look, we'll wear them in mm. any environment, even if it's like a full, like, Tony the Tiger furry type costume. But like, mm. I will die of heat heat exhaustion or whatever the fucking term is in any of these environments. Oh, yeah. I sweat immediately. So I really have to give props to the people who stick with their like elaborate, you know, Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade-like looks in the middle of an <laughs> environment that is trying to kill you. Yeah, I was just in my gym shorts by the end of it. But mm. I will say, I do appreciate appreciate the people who add a bit of creativity to the standard gay slut costume. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like, you can just wear a jockstrap and rabbit ears, but you can also do a little something different mm. and where you at least look interesting. Yeah, like a little bit of makeup or like, yeah, like an accoutrement that like has the impression of clothes but isn't clothes. Anyway. Shows that you got it together maybe a month before and not the morning of. Right. Which is, as you know, how I operate on Halloween. I think that's why my, my main misgiving about Halloween is if you come in unprepared, you always look at it. Like, you can't fake yeah. that you came up with something at the last moment, you know? You can't yeah, sweet talk I your am, way into looking like you belong. I'm skipping Halloween tonight. 
I think I am too. I've had enough. Yeah. I've had enough. I I slept for two days, first of all, after Uter. And today I am going to the theater. Oh, what are you seeing? Instead, I'm seeing Loretta Devine and Pal Joey. Oh my first of all, the words Loretta Devine. Second of all, the words Pal Joey. These are among the most <laughs> things that belong in an Ira sentence, an Ira Madlib. <laughs> Directed by Tony Goldwyn. Oh, our, uh, whom we are discussed in this episode anyway with our very esteemed and lovely guest. Since we're in the midst of a strike, Allison Williams is here to talk about her new podcast, Erased, The Murder of Elma Sands, which is a docu-podcast about a murder trial that uh, is part of the Hamilton um, cinematic universe, yes. if you will. It was one of the first major crimes in America and involves... A couple of Hamilton characters, including Hamilton himself, who I guess was real. I was blown away to find this out. <laughs> it's a Lydia Tarr situation for me. I didn't know. I was on the cusp. Yeah. I don't know why we... I feel like Taylor Swift every time this happens, every time a guest comes on the show and they say, I listened to the show or I've listened to it since the beginning, we turn into... Oh my God, I have a podcast. No, it's very. Hi. <laughs> I am very shocked. I'm like, I understand this is a microphone, but we don't mean to send it out into the world, you know? <laughs> it's sent out into space, you right. know? Only, only the cast of Gravity um, can hear it. But uh, yeah, she listens to the show. So thank you for being a listener and thank you for being a very great guest this week. Yes, a lot of fun. Um, elsewhere in this episode, we are talking about. Priscilla, uh, the new Sofia Coppola movie about Priscilla mm. Presley, based on her '80s memoir *Elvis and Me*, starring Kaylee Spaney. At, yeah, <laughs> based, <laughs> those are actually very different books. We won't get into that. Uh, and Jacob Elordi plays Elvis Presley. We'll get into that. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we will also discuss Matthew Perry this week, who oh. Oh. died surprisingly this weekend. That was. That was a real shocking, like, tweet to see. Right. And also, it's say. like, obviously, it's very murky about what actually happened. Like, he died in a jacuzzi, I guess. But it's just one of those things where immediately I thought, it reminded me a little bit of when Whitney Houston died. You're like, oh, I thought you had mm. gotten better. You know, or I thought you, mm -hmm. like, things had improved or whatever. But we obviously don't know the full story or what happened. But uh, we, we will discuss him and his very interesting filmography, which if you haven't browsed it recently, yeah, lots to learn. You know, yeah, yeah. I think I think the crux the crux of this will be discussing Matthew Perry's filmography, which is um, eccentric. <laughs> well, it's just very. We'll get into it. It's very of the time. I'll say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we will be right back with more keeping. The holidays are coming up. The Cricket Store has everything you need to get festive, which I know is everyone's first priority, especially if you're Mariah Carey. What better way to say, thank God 2023 is almost over than with an indictment-inspired ornament to remember this year by. There's also a bunch of cozy sweaters perfect for that family holiday party where you know your conservative cousin is going to corner you. Head to Cricket.com store to shop. Carrie Umas have been our go-to sneaker for a while now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. Last year, we collaborated with Carrie Uma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and we can't believe they have now designed a second limited edition collaboration with Crooked, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. 
These shoes have a colorful design with lots of Easter eggs. I mean, not Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. We're not insane. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Karyuma collab sold out super fast, so if you want a pair for yourself or the Love It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. Just head to crooked.com slash store. Sitcom legend Matthew Perry sadly passed away last weekend. Actors and co-stars have come out in full force in tribute to the Friends star. We, of course, wanted to take some time to commemorate, remember Matthew Perry's career and legacy. We'll get into Friends first, I guess, which is first of mind when you think of Matthew Perry, obviously. Oh, definitely. It, it is... Um, I, I want to go to um, one tribute, which was very LOL and very her. You're Gwyneth talking about Paltrow. Miss Paltrow? Yes. Oh, my God. Gwyneth Paltrow. I love when she delivers. I love when she delivers. <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow wrote, I met Matthew Perry in 1993 at the Williamstown Theater Festival in Massachusetts. We were both there for most of the summer doing plays. He was so funny and so sweet and so much fun to be with. We drove out to swim in creeks, had beers in the local college bar, kissed in a field of long grass. It was a magical summer. He had shot the pilot of Friends, but it had not yet aired. He was nervous, hoping his big break was just around the corner. It was. We stayed friends for a while until we drifted apart, but I was always happy to see him when I did. I am super sad today, as so many of us are. I hope Matthew is at peace at long last. I really do. That is a beautiful tribute. Um, it's very heartfelt. She also buries in there the fact that she hooked up with Matthew Perry. It's so funny. No, she's like, by the way, let me write you a little Sixpence None the Richer song about how we fucking met. <laughs> Very adorable. Also, um, I have to say, even if Friends didn't come along, this person would have been a star. There's something so, he was so watchable. And this is going to sound really fast, given that they are co-stars. He, to me, was the male Jennifer Aniston. In that, mm. the more he was sputtering and neurotic and at wit's end, the more believable and down-to-earth he seemed. The more he seemed like somebody I have, I've got to keep watching because they are conveying something very real about being a person in these heightened comic environments. I watched a couple of episodes of Friends last night, and it's just, you can count on him to like hit a punchline hard. You know, just like you miss like yeah. that multicam feeling of, oh, I'm leaning into the joke. You know, there's mm. nothing. There's it, nothing in the uh, kind of single cam realm of like, I'm shying away from it. I'm I'm doing something mumblecore. I'm acting awkward to like get a, get around a punchline. No, he was. It's very kind of old school, and yet. And we know you hate awkward, right, uh, guys. I'm sorry. I'm still going to be railing on this for the rest of time. I hate the awkward girls. We've done it. We I hit the button. <laughs> it's funny to think that for years the way that you would impersonate. Chandler on the show is you would always do the uh, could I be anymore? <laughs> like you would always hit um, a lot of dialogue with like an extra punch, but it works when you rewatch it because you are accentuating the dialogue. You are leaning into the character. He is, yeah, he's one of my favorite characters on the show of, of a show of everyone I feel like was pulling their own weight. Yeah. Even if you will rag on David Schwimmer from time to time because Ross was annoying. All six of them really delivered on that show. They all really made distinct characters who I thought were funny um, and sort of 
really hilarious. And I think that Matthew Perry, yeah, is very Jennifer Aniston in that they sort of similarly sort of embodied their characters in a way, but then also sort of, I feel like, have had similar careers. She blew up a bit more because of the Brad Pitt of it all and then the Angelina Jolie of it all. But film-wise, you know, filmography, career-wise, they've sort of stayed the same. Right, right. Uh, it's just like there's something about them where you know what to expect in in a good way. It's like they, this is the one this is the thing they deliver impeccably and nobody else can do that. Um uh there also I just long for the era and I feel like this is a specifically 90s thing where somebody could be both dreamy and sarcastic. I don't know that we really mm. have that balance anymore. In a way I feel like sarcasm is an old school now main character attribute you know i just don't think you'll see like the lead character in a movie from a gen z situation being sarcastic but you know maybe i'm underestimating this generation maybe they'll come in dry and scowling the way i love all my dick cavett anecdotes bottoms had a bit of sarcasm to it and a bit but then it also had a lot of loopiness right but Mm -hmm. i sort of think disaffected is not very Gen Z. No, right. No, but, but like there's when I no heard Gen we were, Z Daria. That's just it. When I heard we were going to get a Daria reboot, I'm like, by whom? I, w- I want to know who this person <laughs> is. Yeah, it's like the difference between Let's... Wednesday Adams in the '90s and Wednesday Adams now. I can hear her trying to emulate this old style of humor, but it doesn't. It doesn't fit with. Uh, it does. It doesn't sound right in 2023, even though people are fucking obsessed with that show. I guess. So let's talk about Matthew Perry's filmography, which is so. Like you said, of its time, he is in some very 90s romantic comedies, and then he's in some very 2000s movies. Totally. Well, I mean, like, Three to Tango is the definition of a movie where everyone is facing to the side and smiling on the poster, and there's one mm-hmm. critic poll quote, and it's wickedly funny. Which, there, it, from 1997 <laughs> to 2000, somebody had to call something wickedly funny. I'm telling you, like, the Cider yes. House Rules was called wickedly funny. You know, <laughs> like, everything Scream qualified. Scream was wickedly funny. Yeah. It is, who was, and it was probably usually Peter Travers at Rolling Stone. Right. Who, do, we don't love him, right? I just feel like everything he no. wrote was, like, a little schmoozy and a little, like, I don't know. He wanted to be, he wanted to be the most glowing review most of the time. You know what I will say about reviewers of the 90s, though? It was so refreshing as a teenager obsessed with, um, a teenager and adolescent obsessed with Entertainment Weekly who hated Owen Gleiberman reviews. Uh-huh. And, when I be- and then when I grew up realizing that everyone hates Owen Gleiberman reviews, <laughs> I thought it was just me. Because he was in Entertainment Weekly every fucking week. So I was like, well, he's a professional. How can a professional be bad? Uh, and then I realized, no, he his takes suck. Um, well, of course, during that time, I was an obsessive Leonard Malton fan. Leonard Malton, who once mm. upon a time would like wait years before giving a four star review, and I relate mm. to that. Um, no, not everything should be four stars. That's the one reason I di- I disagree with the world of Roger Ebert. Much as I am constantly watching Siskel and Ebert videos, up until last mm. night, by the way, um, when you give that many v- movies four stars. Something's going on there. I, I, I need you to raise the bar a little bit. Mm, that is why, I mean, I love reading Ebert's old reviews, and, and I used to read them in print all the time, but there is something much better about film reviewing when it comes in at the movies. Because just a simple thumbs up versus a thumbs down or the rare thumb sideways <laughs> 
is much easier to talk about film, I would say. Yeah, I enjoy Letterboxd, but even when I'm Letterboxing something, like, it's, do I want to get something five stars? Do I want to get something four stars? Do I want to get something three stars because I enjoyed it, but it could have been better? But looking at a film with three stars, it's like, am I disrespecting this film? Like, I just gave Strange Way of Life three stars on oh Letterboxd. Oh, my God. That, that a piece of shit? Almodovar. Yeah. Ha! <laughs> People hate that First short. First of all, First of all, you'll never talk about El Moldovar that way, okay? Uh, <laughs> oh, and ever. we should talk about it that I, way? Okay. I, I spit on your grave. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm Italian. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> either, and no, neither does he, and please don't watch this, Pedro. It is not great. I will say it. it is a film where it is a short, and I get why he wanted to make it a short, probably just because he didn't want to make a whole fucking movie of this, but the themes and the characters in it, it should be longer. Mm. I don't know if you've seen The Human Voice. Oh, that I love. That's Tilda Swinton. Yes. Well, but that is Tilda, and it's mostly her giving a monologue that's a phone call to uh, a man who's broken up with her, and it's all her anger and rage, and that works as a short film, right? This is sort of... Almodovar sticking one of his full movies into 30 minutes, which means that the first 10 minutes of the movie is a lot of fucking exposition that just makes no goddamn sense. And it's when you're in one of his full movies, when he's borrowing from telenovela tropes and like seeing all these characters, and then you get really get the fullness of all those characters, it doesn't feel laborious it feels laborious when you have 10 full minutes of people just recapping backstory and then you never even meet any of these characters that they're talking right a signature of his is there's a lot of plot but anyway back to matthew perry uh Mm -hmm. i cannot believe that his last movie is 17 again with zach efron which is about 2009 yes we have this you know um switch bodies trope in about nine to ten different movies i would rank this one about sixth but they were both very charming, and also what's I, above it? Let's well, okay. First of all, big. Uh, second of big all, is... f- vice versa. Do not come for the legacy of Judge Reinhold. That's for another podcast. We're going to get into <laughs> that sometime. Uh, of course, Freaky Friday with uh, uh, Oscar winner Jamie Lee Curtis and Nobel Prize winner Lindsay Lohan. Mm-hmm. Um, the original Freaky Friday. Let me tell you what's not above it. Little. Oh please! I didn't even bring that up. I, as as a couth yeah. person, I didn't bring it up. Oh, you know what is very good? Freaky, the horror movie from Chris Landon. Also, Wish Upon a Star, of course, is a delightful film. Maybe yeah. Catherine Heigl's um, best film work. But I would say that this this is a this is a very likable film. Matthew Perry is great in it. Zac Efron is great in it. Leslie Mann is great in it. She always does her best work when she's free of her husband's clutches. <laughs> and it is, it, I, I like rewatched it at the gym recently because it was just on TBS or something or MTV, whatever. But it was on a TV screen. And I really love when a movie like that is on because it will keep you on the treadmill for two hours right 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 also zach efron by the way is kind of in the oscars conversation this year because he's in that movie about that wrestling family i can't be i, I don't remember the name of the wrestling family and it's an extremely extremely coming, tragic story but he seems very custom built for this movie so i'm excited in, in a i don't mean to compare it directly to mickey rourke and the wrestler but yeah. sometimes casting works out <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it's the Von Erich family, and yes. their, their their family history is dark as no, hell. No, you take two but seconds on the Wikipedia, say, and you're like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> but I would say that um, I saw this trajectory for Zac Efron. I think he's always been a very... I think it's, there's a reason he played a young Matthew Perry. Mm. I think Matthew Perry was never really getting to that Oscars conversation. I think that he was definitely always in that Emmy conversation because, um, you know, not just friends, but I thought he was great in dramatic roles on like The Good Wife mm. and The Good Fight. Um, and he was good in Studio 60, even though it was a piece of trash of a TV show. Um, but I would say that Zac Efron and The Paperboy affable oh, but also sure. very good at being serious and i could see oscar conversation coming to him in the future that was not um in a lee daniels um melodrama right you just brought up the other tv shows of matthew perry and i wanted to point out at the hollywood reporter my favorite tv writer still is uh dan feinberg whom i used to work with at hit fix mm. years and years ago he wrote an awesome tribute to matthew perry that you should read and he brought up how some of his best work was on the show Go On, which was a one-season mm. show that was years and years later. Interesting cast. Laura Benanti's in it. A whole bunch of people. And um, this is way better than his other show, um, Mr. Sunshine. with Mr. Sunshine. With Alice and Janney from about 2010. Not a good show. This was a better show. And it also it, it added dramatic punch to the sort of cynicism he can bring to a role. And it also mm. tied a little bit more deeply into what Matthew Perry believed his own legacy was, which was he was a recovered addict, uh, alcoholic, and he spent a lot of time helping people with those problems, too. So um, that's a good TV show to peek at. And please read this memorial. It is such a brilliant recollection of his career. That's a great way to, I feel like, remember Matthew Perry. I think that our most recent memory of Matthew Perry, unfortunately, is his autobiography where he talks right. about wishing that Keanu Reeves would die. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I totally forgot that. Yeah, you're right. Yes. But I don't mind him writing that because when you think about who Matthew Perry is and was, um, you think about his addiction issues and how public they were and how many demons he had. And I think that people who come back from traumatic moments um, – and sort of reevaluate their lives. And then also we've heard from so many people in the industry this since he died who have said that, you know, he personally helped them with their own addiction issues or he tried to help them with um, just their careers, et cetera. Like he became, like you said, he became very devoted to helping other people. Um, I think that you're just become a person who's brutally honest uh, about who you used to be. And yeah. I think for him, um, writing that he felt that way about Keanu Reeves at the time was his way of sort of exercising those demons. Like, I was a shitty person, and that is how I felt at the time. And I think it only heals myself and heals that person who I used to be by being honest about who I used to be, you know? There's no reason to sanitize it. Right. Also, it must be said, I have extra sympathy for anybody who's going through um, clear uh, personal problems when you're on a show as big as Friends and it's in the middle of a show like Friends. I mean, like, what does that do to your brain when you're getting all this attention anyway? Like, it's it's beyond your normal comprehension. It's a phenomenon. Fr Friends remains one of the biggest TV shows of all time. And also, every week, people have questions about your well-being. You know, there are a couple of times in TV history where this kind of happens, like, like Mackenzie Phillips leaving the original 
one day at a time because her drug issues had become so well known. It's like, what is that doing mm-hmm. to your brain when like you're having this intense experience anyway, and it's compounded with the fact that you're on a you're on a beloved TV show, and like everybody has an opinion about how you're doing from episode to episode. Like every time people check in with this show, they're thinking, "Is he okay? Is he getting worse? Is he getting better?" You know, it's just like I I can't imagine what that does to the brain. Mm-hmm. And I will um, lastly say that hands down, one of my favorite Matthew Perry roles is in the whole nine yards. Oh, of course, yeah, that's probably his best movie, I guess, wouldn't it be? Yeah, and that's 2000, and honestly, I think that The Whole Ten Yards is pretty good, too. I think that The Whole Nine Yards is a film that I remember it coming out in 2000 and it getting good reviews and people being shocked that it was good, maybe because it had, you know, Matthew Perry, Amanda Peet in it. it. It seemed like it was just, here's some TV people with Bruce Willis, and it's like maybe a throwaway comedy, but I think its legacy has um, proven over the years that it's a great fucking movie and a lot of people love it. So if you haven't seen the whole nine yards, if you somehow missed that film, I would definitely recommend watching it. It's still fucking hysterical. Also, by the way, I guess I'm glad we got that friends reunion recently. Cause when I was watching it at the time, it felt sort of stodgy and like they were milking these emotional moments that weren't really there. I mean, these people were all around in the world. So it's just like, it, it didn't feel that extremely emotional for me. And it felt weird that they recreated all the sets and stuff. But um, mm. now I'm so glad we have that, since there will never be a full Friends reunion again. Let me tell you something, though. I am never visiting that Friends museum. Okay? Oh, no. Sorry. I'm sorry. There were already people doing tearful tributes seconds after he died at the Friends museum. And I, I just can't take it. No. Uh, I, think, I think that's one of the only things after this death um, that was annoying, cloying to me. It's a thing that always happens. It's a thing where... Someone finds a scene from Friends, right? And tweets it out five minutes after you found out that Matthew Perry passed away. And it's like, this scene hits different now. Or this will never be watched the same again. It was five minutes ago, bitch. (laughs) Yeah, you're already jumping on it. You haven't even had enough time to process it. Right, right. You're the the coroners of Twitter doing their best and worst. Performativeness after celebrities die is always highly annoying yes and also just shout out to the fact that tmz reported this as they always do with a celebrity death so soon after finding out about his death because they paid off someone at the hospital uh allegedly it sucks because his close friends and family found out that he died from social media and not from you know a group text thread or a phone call and that's really shitty. I'm going to so. say, I usually think of TMZ as refined and respectful, so I can't believe it went down this way. <laughs> Harvey Levin, or as I call him, Miss Manners. <laughs> let's, get, uh, let's get Heidi Montag outside of Ledoux. What do you think of Matthew Perry <laughs> dying yesterday? Oh, God. Too real. <laughs> All right. When we are back, we will be joined by the delightful... Allison Williams. Guys, it's been a rough year. 
it's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. When it comes to irreverent millennial comedy and Mm. jilting, eerie horror performances, our guest today is the master of both worlds. Most recently, she's been cementing her legacy as a scream queen, but now she is back bringing light to sexist historical injustices with her new podcast, Erased, the Murder of Elma Sands. Welcome to Keep It, the fantastic Allison Williams. I'm so honored to be here. I have spent many, many hours listening to this podcast, more than many, like an uncountable amount. And so it's like surreal to be looking at you both and talking to you. So what is wrong with you? you. What has led you down this path? (laughs) I'm so Uh, sorry. This has to be you. (laughs) No, I just want to know what's happening. I want to know how you feel about it. I will speak for all of our fans and say that's kind of what brings me here every week. And the weird trivia that I'm going to learn and the weird rabbit holes I go down after a reference that's made that I don't get. And then like six hours later, I get myself out of a YouTube. All right. (laughs) Where am I? I accept that answer. All right. All right. How nice of you. Why am I thinking about Catherine Hepburn's like great niece? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Catherine Houghton, who was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yes. Exactly. All right. Moving up. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, I feel like, have collectively spent so many hours consuming Allison Williams content. Definitely. So, I mean, yes. the, the love is mutual. And I have oh, to say, now you. you're coming for a gig. You're, uh, yes. you're a podcast queen now. Oh, this so. is what's so scary. Like, I'm going into <laughs> your industry i'm i feel very honored and humbled to be there i hope it lives up to the standard of the podcasting heroes of the mount rushmore of podcasts that uh i listen to i um it's really fun and very challenging in a bunch of ways that i think people vastly underestimate to produce good audio content chief among them people have no tolerance for bad audio they just, they can tolerate bad video, but people turn things off so fast after bad audio. And what constitutes bad is very broad and is different person to person. And so I bow down. I'm very, very honored to be joining your league of podcasters. What's interesting is you would think based on the title that this is like a traditional, like people just discussing the crime or whatever, but no, it's like an old school 
radio drama. We were just talking about, I don't know if you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon yet, but it basically ends on a note that's that's like this format or like, you know, the old uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes performances on the radio or something. So I assume that's like a a wild challenge to have to invent an entire universe and perform it basically only via speaking and sound effects. Totally. I give all that credit to Alison Flom. We have the same name. It's inconvenient and confusing, but it is what it is. Um, she she is the one who, she was a tour guide in Manhattan and she uh, discovered this well in Soho in the basement of a clothing store and found out what happened in it, which is that a girl was murdered and the trial for her murder happened uh, in 1800, first murder trial with the new US constitution and the co-counsel for the defense were Hamilton and Byrd. She was like, excuse me, why don't we know this story? This is how they establish precedent for so many things. And this is why so much of our system is so rotten because from the beginning, all of that privilege was just baked into all of it. And so she became obsessed with the idea and then she wrote everything I came on as a producer and to do one of the voices, but she really wrote everything and and directed it and conceptualized like, how do you, how and why is the best way to do this? Like a kind of uh, drama, like a radio show where you come in and you're put back there. And also is it, she narrates it, which I think is really helpful because a lot of it is requires footnotes to really get the most out of the story. You need someone kind of guiding you through it. And so I think that device really works, but yeah, I think like I think it could have risked seeming like history class if we had just sort of told the story of it. I think by dramatizing it, you introduce these characters and you introduce uh, the emotions in a way that I'm not sure you would have been able to achieve just with a more dry. Like I love me a history podcast, but it's not a very big. Um, you know, it doesn't cast a super wide net. We wanted this to to be able to appeal to everybody, not just people who think they are really into history or court <laughs> or, you know, the constitution <laughs> or whatever. Um, well, so yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. No, I, listen, <laughs> I, I am a big stand for U.S. history, but it's not, we're not a big group. It's you and fun. Cardi B, you know? That's right. Oh yes. my God. That was like between like blinking back tears and like snot, like uh, being just totally overwhelmed with just saying like, I've been to that house and it was meaningful <laughs> to me. And it's just like, what is happening to the world? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely think someone needs to get this podcast in front of her because Cardi B listening to this, I'm sure she, I'm sure she probably already knows about it. I mean, she's probably obsessed with Hamilton <laughs> and Burr. She's been to the store. Uh, <laughs> the whole extended Hamilton universe, I'm sure she knows about. She's like, well, here's some other stories that are going on in history that you need to do a podcast about, too. So, You know what? I'm going to fire myself and hire Cardi B. <laughs> I've, never had, I've never had an easier job and security moment in my life. I'm just gone. <laughs> Replacing myself so fast. Yeah, we'd be honored, obviously. So tell us a bit about the process of making this, you know, I, you know, I've done, um, audio for an animated series before, and that was during COVID, you know, so that was a lot of, that was very difficult with the whole doing some of it at home and then going to a studio and then wiping down things. But now we're in at least a little bit of a different era. So was this, um, sort of like filming, I know you did The Simpsons before. Was this about, was this like recording for an animated show or was this like, um, were you together at certain points? Sort of what was the process of making this? So it was also COVID and mm. I recorded it um, 
at my parents' house in the quietest part of the house that we could find, which ended up being like between, like on a long step, but on a staircase (laughs) in a room that it's very hard to explain. But anyway, so I was like teetering on the edge of like falling down a flight of stairs. And, um, I was a, I was by myself. They sent all the equipment. I set it all up. That part was very complicated. I'm a, a major Luddite when it comes to recording. Like the way it all worked felt like magic to me that I was somehow like a, a, a audience volunteer to help with. And everyone, a lot of the other cast, um, except for Barry and Tony, I think were all in a studio together in New York and they had all been mm. testing and stuff so that they could be there together. And Allison was directing them there and then directing me remotely. And so I was oh. trying to like be extra quarantined to make sure that I, I didn't show up in New Zealand with COVID because of that. There were two weeks of, anyway, it's more detail than you needed, but I was by <laughs> myself, but I could hear all of them and see all of them. And, and we performed it together. And apparently it's very unusual um, to record a, a show like this one with a whole cast together. But I think it helped contribute mm. to a lot of those bigger scenes. It is a courtroom. I think it would have felt deeply strange to have no moments where there were just like a ton of people together, either like murmuring in disapproval or reacting to something. Um, and then of course the cast is kind of big. There's a lot of characters that come in and out of the show and some people double up on them. And it was really cool to listen to and watch these performances from all these other actors. And um, so that was the process. And it was, uh, it was, I think two or three days of filming and then Tony recorded his separately. And um, when I first listened to it, it all sounded and felt so cohesive in a way that I knew it wasn't, which is I'm used to in our, my job normally, but I, I just, it blew my mind the way Allison was able to achieve it in this show. It just all feels very, but yes, the wiping everything down and the being very alone was so strange. I would just emerge from this room after like 10 hours, like just bags under my eyes. Like what happened to the world while I was in there? It's still there. Um, the world is still there. Reader. Uh, the Tony in question, by the way, is Mr. Goldwyn, um, who yes, I think so only sorry. gets better with age, by the way. Uh, one of my Oh my favorites. gosh. He's so wonderful. And he's so good as Hamilton because you hear his voice. You're like, oh, that's Fitz. That's like my moral, you know, that's my president in this other universe where Fitz <laughs> is president. And as Hamilton, it really works. And as the show goes on, you kind of lose respect for him. If you come into it with like a big Hamilton, the musical bias, and you only think of him through that lens, you come into this show with that expectation. And then slowly but surely, you start to see just how dismissive he is of all the women who take the stand, really, and how hand wavy he is about this girl who was killed. And you start to think, oh, I don't know if I still feel this way about him, but it is also Tony Goldwyn's voice. So I might still trust him. It's a very, it was really good casting on Allison's part. There's something so satisfying about like anybody who was a beloved character in one thing being a total dick in something else. I don't know why, like Mm -hmm. as, as a listener, as like a viewer, it's something I just want to see just like, when you ever, whenever you hear that, like John Wayne was like a horrible sexist or racist or something, I, I want to see that portrayal of John Wayne. You know? Oh yeah, I yes, that portrayal of by himself of himself. Yeah, right, just <laughs> him. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really fun. I I have enjoyed that in the past. 
Mm-hmm. Is what I'll say, I guess, in this moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it, that's he's also just a person who I feel like everyone loves, from pre-scandal to also. I mean, I'm very excited to see his production of um, Pal Joey that he directed, Loretta Divine, and mm. and that you've also you've worked with. Uh, I feel like so many people you've worked with are on, you know, off the Great White Way right now. I mean, Christopher Abbott has um, his production of the John Patrick Shanley play that's going up, which is yes. literally like three blocks from me. So I feel like, have you been able to see that yet? I haven't seen that. I just saw, I haven't seen anything on stage in a really long time. Mm. And I just saw another friend of mine who I met working on something um, in a production of The Great Gatsby at Playmill. Um, I'm the musical one see... that Jeremy Jordan's in. Yes. 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 Exactly. I went yeah. to see um I went to see Gutenberg. Um I'm going to see Gutenberg uh soon. And so I'm just starting to get back into I can't there's so much theater that I need to see it. Like if I think about it for too long, I get extremely overwhelmed and stressed out. But like what a beautiful <laughs> problem to have to just not have enough time to go see all the great shows that are on. And you started in time. theater, yes. When I you were did. Younger? Yes, be, yes, I did. Um, but like when you say it that way, it's like I'm SJP and I'm Annie. It's, <laughs> we are, we are in, you were in some iconic in shows, like, though. Sweet Charity, Dream Girls. We are in like a deeply local, deeply summer camp. Um, <laughs> not even we're not even talking like stage door. We're just talking like stoner teenagers, like being like, I guess I understand theater. Here's your bagged lunch of Lunchables. Like go sing, <laughs> go sing this song. That's what we're talking about. But yes, like I wasn't, my parents really didn't want me acting for real, for real until as mm. late as possible, as long as they could keep me from doing it. So stage was, and it was so much fun and I haven't done it in so long. And I'd, I'd love the, I guess. Yeah. Oh, wow. I almost, um, yes, I, I haven't done it in a really long time. So in this, in this podcast and in uh, another prominent horror project you did this year and in one you did a few years ago, I think you do a lot of reacting to ghastly things. And I'm like, would you consider that a specialty trait of yours? Like, do you think this, like, this line of acting suits you particularly? Well, you know, what's funny about that is like um, the, the idea of I haven't done a lot of actual screaming. Right. Which, which hmm. is a kind of unusual niche to be in. I think, I think maybe my um, response to terror in real life is muted. And thus I kind of give that to these projects. And I think for those of us who have small reactions to things, just have like a delayed kind of PTSD response and then do a lot of therapy later, I'm kind of representing that um, fight, flight, freeze is sort of like, I guess I'm the freeze girl representing, um, the response to things that are scary. Um, but yeah, I think responding to ghastly things the way I think I actually would, if they were coming at me in real life is a thought experiment I've had to run many times in the last couple of years in ways I could not have possibly imagined, like at the beginning of my career. Okay. How would I react if this came towards me or if this was trying to kill me? Or if I was trying to kill this person or, you know, all of those thought experiments, that is what is acting, but wondering how you would run away from an inanimate object who's trying to kill you and is animated. It's interesting that you say that though, because I was watching an old movie, Shocker, recently, and like, like in a lot of old movies, there will be like a yelling fight. 
or something. And I realized, like, when does when do people yell at each other anymore? Like, it, it's it, it, Just it seems marriage like what, story. Yes, it was, it's like that's <laughs> it, that's it. But it's like otherwise, that isn't really realistic. And what you're describing, like having a muted reaction, is one probably more realistic, and two. The problem is it's just not necessarily as telegenic. So yeah. do you have, have you have you negotiated ways to make that, you know, sort of appealing to the screen? Well, there's definitely a balance. Like I, I think when you watch uh, when you watch something that's appropriately calibrated, you just think like, yes, that's the exact amount of scared. They're not overdoing it. They're not underdoing it. It's like, well, and my instinct is always to underdo it. And so part of the director's job inevitably is like pulling me up and I sometimes just tell myself to like go to a 10 and it always ends up being like a universal like four. And that <laughs> sometimes works. <laughs> like, I'm not just gonna, you know, but yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. I often imagine if, if we made movies more like I have a pistol on my hip and I'm just like, you know, in a kind of noir way, I'm just like slowly berating you and it gets louder and louder and louder. And then the person I'm berating is also holding a pistol at their hip and they're getting louder and louder, you know, like it just doesn't seem like it happens anymore, but I am curious as to why I think it might, yeah, have just gone with the, everything else becoming more real, the lighting, the HD, it all is just so proximate that those bigger outsized performances have to be couched in a very also aesthetically big and outsized world in order for it to work. Um, but it's fun when people do that now because it happens so rarely. Mm-hmm. Is Lena Dunham's direction, does that stand out in your mind still to this day? I, am, I, I feel like she as a director must be different than how we experience her, um, you know, just as a, as a personality because she so works it as a director. I think it was easier for her to direct things that she wasn't in. Her direction is so good and so specific and she's able to tailor it to the person that she's talking to. Like great directors can, I think Um, what's going to work for one actor, what's going to resonate with them. Isn't going to work for another. I'm sure I'm like a, you know, I like love some positive reinforcement. It's very helpful. (laughs) If you want like good things from this type a people pleaser, like, it's very good to just tell me I've pleased you first and then tell me the ways that I'm terrible. And then I'm like, <laughs> I can digest it. It's all good. But there's people who are kind of like gluttons for punishment and are like, tell me I'm bad. And like, I'm going to get better and whatever. And so it, you can, a good director can kind of move seamlessly between those styles and figure out how to, how to get through to each actor. And also they all work in different ways. Like sometimes what I needed her to do was a line reading. And there are actors who would like slap a director across the face for doing that. But um, because she's also an actor, it was very useful for me. And because she often was going for something quite specific um, in certain moments, I was just like, show me your dream thing to see and I'll just try to emulate it. Um, So yeah, very versatile, I guess, is the very succinct way I could have answered that question and didn't. I don't know if you've ever seen Barbara Streisand directing herself in Yentl. Oh, it's amazing. You should should track that down. It just went viral again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, I would love to. What's the what's the vibe? So she's she and Manny Patinkin are in a fight in the movie, and of course he's coming at her at about five hundred miles an hour, and she <laughs> is like being gentle and like seemingly you know um, uh, she's aghast and stuff. But then as a director, she is like alpha calling the shots in the middle of being this like fearful character. It's so amazing. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna watch that. So the, did being on a show like that make you ever want to direct? Not direct. What I, what I love is the combination of producing and acting that I've 
found myself in for the last couple of projects. I absolutely love it. Directing requires an eye that I I don't have naturally. And and maybe if I pay more attention over the next couple of projects, I might develop. But there are some people who just think that way from the beginning, actors I've worked with. And then there are some who don't. And um, I think much more, I like to just know everything. Like I like to be all up in the business of whatever I'm working on. I like to know just down to like the smallest detail, like who we're hiring, why, what were our options, location scouts, tech scouts, drafts of scripts, like clearance reports about what t-shirt a character can wear in a scene and what companies said no to using their logo. Like there's no level too granular. I want to know it all. I'm so nosy. And I just leaned into it and I realized that there's a name for it, which is producer. And so the great thing (laughs) is that an actor who's just nosy is annoying, but an actor who's a producer gets to be nosy and it's not annoying. It's actually just them doing their job really well. And so I'm loving that combination. And it's fun to then drop all of that, let it just go away and just be an actor on set um, when it's time for that to happen. And you can kind of forget all of the other stuff and, and just be there, be in it in that way. Um, but yeah, directing, I don't know. It... Um, it require. I think I view things too much uh, in a, in a different way. A director really looks at the world differently, looks at a frame differently, and looks at a performance differently, and and notices a background actor who's uh, just a second late. Or and that's not. I'm not there, but um, I know what a script needs and and the people that we should bring onto a project. And those are those are the strengths that I. I feel like I'm applying for a job. Will you hire me? (laughs) (laughs) Can I please? She's really qualified. Her her one flaw is that she works too hard and wants to know everything. Yeah, Yeah, right. My biggest weakness is that I care too much and I work too hard. (laughs) Those people would scare me in a job interview. Not you particularly, but you know. I would also scare you in a job interview. Whatever you have to do, that. I'm sure I'm just like type a and and you know yeah i think i would probably scare you in a job interview. there's your next great horror movie actually you know allison williams in a a job interview yeah Yeah. and you were you were you were scaring the interviewer and it's just 90 minutes of terror i just don't blink for the entire movie (laughs) speaking of of people that you've worked with uh you were friends with brian jordan alvarez and I need, I, we need some insight into how he crafted TJ Mack, his viral character with, who is Australian-ish. And the filter on the head, too, is really just what makes me crack up every time I see He's, it cross my screen. Brian is, Brian is a genius. Um, he takes what we all, in theory, have access to, which is filters, and has turned it into like a cinematic universe that I'm very invested in with crossing over storylines and marriages and characters that, like, I, I don't know how to express the joy I feel when I see another video from one of his characters, TJ Mack, who's now a pop star, or when I see, like, Marnie, the motivational speaker, or like all of them. I'm just so invested in them. And recently I saw Brian and he put that filter on his phone, which I mean, I could have on my phone too. But for some reason, when he flipped it around and it was on his phone, it felt like I was in the TJ Mack universe. 
I was like, oh my God, this is an honor that your phone is capturing me in this filter. Thank you so much. Um, I just think it's like, it's, it's kind of the modern mask work, like almost commedia dell'arte to be able to see what you look like in this, um, kind of fun house masked mirror and come up with the persona behind it is one thing that's already fun and challenging. It's another to build out that story and make us so invested in them. All of these characters have, have quirks that I love so much. Many of them feel like they like smile really fast and then it drops like as if they don't give themselves permission to feel joy. And like a lot of them have just arbitrary, odd pronunci- pronunciation quirks that I love. And his Australian accent is so dead on that he often people are often shocked australians are shocked that he's not australian he has just like so nailed this the persona of a of a trainer um who just lifts heaps to quote him in this australian accent anyway if you don't know what we're talking about this all sounds absolutely deranged and it is and that's why you should check it out because he's very talented no, for this reason alone, we need to have Tony Collette back because she was talking about the few people who've mastered an Australian accent who aren't Australian. And she said Kate Winslet in that Jane Campion movie, Holy Smoke or Holy Smokes. Mm-hmm. And, and it might just be her and Brian Jordan Alvarez. I would like to hear her take on this. I would love to hear it because the reviews are very, very good, including like local radio stations and TV networks discussing the, the clips of him and being like, this isn't an Aussie. This person is from the US. And it's, it's just so impressive. His ear, but also he's just like one of those people who just observes, 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 and then and then digests it and metabolizes it and puts it into these characters in ways that are unexpected and just so specific. I think his specificity is such a superpower. Mm -hmm. I would throw Carrie Butler into that because she was doing Olivia Newton-John's accent when she did Xanadu the musical. And I thought it was pretty good. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Australian culture, Xanadu the musical. Yes. You know, the height of culture. We talk about this show. They're all roller skating over there. You didn't know that? Okay. Yeah. Every one of them. Um, I guess lastly, to circle back to what I was asking before, because I'm always asking about theater. um, Is that something that you feel like you would like to do again? Or are you just happy in the film and television world? And you're like, you don't have an itch to really be on stage. I would love to do it again. It would be really interesting to see what appealed to me because one of the things I love about film and TV is the intimacy of it. I always found it for reasons like we were discussing earlier. I always found it really hard to give a big performance that hits the back of the house and not think about the front row and what they're seeing and be like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're getting something that feels really wild to me. And the back of the house is getting something that feels right sized you know, and so that has always felt really challenging. Um, bursting into song, like doing all of those, just leaning into the musical of it and knowing that you are performing in an art that is is decidedly different tonally from the one that I've been doing for a long time was at one point totally second nature to me because it was all I'd ever done. And now I'd be very curious to see how I would do it. I um, would love to, I miss it so much. I miss I miss theater people. I miss being around them all the time. I miss being on a stage all the time. I love the rehearsal process of that. Um, But I've never done like a long run of something. And that's another challenge. I don't know. These people who do shows for years and years and years, and it's just their normal job is astonishing to me. It's so admirable that they can just be consistently great for so long. Um, So yeah, I'm definitely, definitely open to it. And 
the singing part would also be fun to do. Theater but, in the round. Yeah. We got to get in the round. Ra- then you don't, I feel like <laughs> yes. theater in the round, you don't have, you don't have to cheat to the, you don't have to cheat to the back of the house. You're like, everyone's Do you there. know what I mean? I, I yeah, did, I do. Absolutely. I'm going to I'm gonna try to talk about this like kind of obliquely, but I once did something that was sort of a hybrid between the two. And um, the challenge was figuring out for television cameras, how to, again, I've used this word a lot, but I don't know how else to describe it to calibrate a performance that is known as a musical performance and Mm -hmm. figuring out in wide and tight shots like how are you how are you going to do that and anyone who's ever done a movie musical also has the same challenge um and it really is different like if you are playing in a broad musical and you're trying to hit the back of the house with whatever you're doing that is a very different performance than one where you're in a more intimate space and it's just you and a lens it feels really it feels really really different and the great musical theater actors can make it seem like they are singing just to you no matter where you're sitting. And that I guess is a superpower. I just haven't unlocked in myself yet, but I'd love to I, try. I wonder if that's why Jonathan Groff like spits on the front row. So they can't judge how big his performance is. They're too busy wiping it <laughs> from their face. <laughs> Listen, if I opened my mouth and the noise that Jonathan Groff makes came out, I'd be happy with any saliva that needs to come along with it. Like whatever. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to open my it. mouth in the front row at Merrily We Roll Along. You know, I love it. <laughs> Good I, Lord. I, I, oh, God. <laughs> he spit in my face on Little Shop of Horrors, and it was like I hadn't had that sensation since Spring Awakening, and I was like, I, I miss it. It's, 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 it's refreshing. God. It's like it's – like, It's an uh, elixir. It is. It is. It's, it's like the fountain of youth or something. Allison – Thank you so much for being here. Oh, what a and, joy. Oh, my God. I'm, thank you for I'm listening so to us. By you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding? You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Keep going. We need you telling us what's happening and what how we should feel about it. I am a sheep. Just continue to lead me, please, through this oh, culture. F- fuck yeah, sheeple. Yeah. Remember that from 2016? Let's do <laughs> yeah. it. Onward. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and listen to erased uh the podcast everyone it's it, it, it's really really entertaining and i'm just really was like devouring it last night on the subway oh, so thank you. thank you so much All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod 
Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. So we both saw Priscilla, a Sofia Coppola joint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can bet we're feeling all shook up about it. Oh, yeah. Any other titles you want to throw in? Because I'm going to return that one to sender, motherfucker. <laughs> we both, we touched on it a bit last week, but now we're going to fully dive into how we feel about the film. Um, Lewis, yes. how do you feel about this non-queen of the desert? Yes, correct. I <laughs> Thank you for that distinction. Sofia Coppola, somebody who I always think I'm going to love the movie, and then I end up liking it. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I, with the exception of, I thought the Beguiled was really good. So, uh, not always. I mean, like, like Lost okay. in Translation, Sometimes. I think is really good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and somewhere like the movie, um, mm-hmm. uh, this particular one, I thought it was a really interesting Todd Hainsey sort of investigation of Priscilla Presley and Elvis mm. Presley. Basically, Priscilla Presley is a very young girl who is, uh, an army brat and she's in Germany, and somebody just walks up to her at a bar and says, would you like to hang out with Elvis Presley? He throws these house parties, and he loves seeing people from home. So she's like sort of sputtering and unsure what's really going on, and she says yes. And really, the entire movie is about her being kind of unsure how she got into this, and both enthralled and romanced by Elvis, but also confused. Just like, like what is it about me that qualifies me to be here? Um, she's learning to have agency, but doesn't really get it. And what's interesting about this performance by the actress uh, Kaylee Spaney is this character, to me, to my eyes, barely has any qualities. Like, really, you're just watching stuff happen to her and her figuring out what to do once it's happened. It's a little bit like a video game character or something. Um, I might compare it to the movie Blonde with Marilyn Monroe, where it's just like, it feels like obstacle after obstacle is being thrown at Marilyn and... uh, it gets a lot grosser and hairier in that movie than it does here. But um, we see her uh, in in Graceland living with Elvis. And I just have to say, Jacob Elordi, again, I just saw him in Saltburn, where I thought he was fabulous in the best part of the movie. He is so lived in as Elvis Presley. You take no time at all to accept that he is, you know, the biggest pop supernova of all time. And not that I disliked Austin Butler and Elvis, but how close did he get to winning that Oscar? Extremely close. And I personally think if Baz Luhrmann had his druthers, he'd have ditched Austin Butler and picked this guy. He is so fucking mm. good. I think Jacob Elordi is the best part of the film, yeah. hands, hands down. Uh, he is a fantastic actor. Uh, I haven't seen Saltburn yet. I'm seeing it next week. But I think that he's often one of the best parts, opposite of Zendaya in... Um, euphoria and i love him as an actor so people try to put a lot of this on timothy chalamet but he's sort of a bird as you see from his relationship history right but jacob elordi i like seeing him out in fits in public but also a bunch of books on him oh yeah he's well, really he, that kind of actor he, he dovetails with the james franco universe yes correct mm. Yes. Um, hopefully not too much. Yeah, I was going to say, just in this way alone. I don't mean to imply anything else. Um, don't start an acting school. Right. Oh, yeah. Th- I there's all a about tip. That. But I will say that this film, it's interesting that you compared it to Todd Haynes-ish. Because what this film didn't have is any swagger. And I will say that I love Sofia Coppola. 
probably more than you do. And I think that her movies tend to be a bit more dreamlike. I think they tend to be a bit more exaggerated. I think that's why I love Marie Antoinette so much uh, and The Virgin Suicides. But I felt like this film was so straightforward in its presentation that none of it felt like we were really inside of Priscilla's head. It felt like a lot of stuff was happening to her. Once we got to the end where she, you know, divorces Elvis. Spoiler. With her. <laughs> and she puts on her little purse and walks out of Graceland. It reminded me of Bling Ring. Like she looked like Alexis Nears. First of all, she looks like <laughs> Madison Beer the whole movie and yes. how she's styled. Uh Kaylee didn't really do it for me in this film, mostly because she didn't have a lot to work with. And I felt like the film was drab. It didn't look great to me. I was bored most of the film. You can tell that it was shot in 30 days because it felt cheap. It felt claustrophobic in how it was set and not in the way that it's supposed to be claustrophobic for her because she can't escape Graceland. I really didn't like this movie. That's interesting. At all. It didn't yeah. gag me one bit. No, I mean, like, I think basically we have a difference of opinion about the drabness, which is to say, I thought mm-hmm. it served the message of the movie well. Like, this is somebody mm-hmm. who takes this wild opportunity, and I'm going to call it an opportunity because Elvis initially romances her, and her parents are extremely cautious. They're like, what the fuck is going on? We're about to never see this person again. Mm-hmm. And then, Two seconds after they meet Elvis, they are like, this is the perfect opportunity for her. I thought that was first one of the mm-hmm. first brilliant things about this movie. How suddenly this, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess we would call it predatory relationship Elvis has with Priscilla is suddenly great for Priscilla uh, in the eyes of her parents, which uh, th- that was very well um, conveyed on screen. But um, and, and then immediately she realizes once she moves in with Elvis, I would say it takes the turn right then. Like, her life is not fabulous, really. Um, she has mm-hmm. a couple of moments of of greatness alongside him when they go to Vegas and stuff. But for the most part, she realizes quickly she is being recruited to be a minor planet in the solar system of Elvis Presley, where he is, of course, the motherfucking son. You know? Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, obviously, you know, however long this movie is, an hour and a half, a little longer... To be within that drab, vacuum-sealed environment, there it can feel a little bit like an energy suck. But at the same time, I remember that feeling, and I think um, it, it's just it's just extremely well conveyed how like there's never enough light in any given room. You know, there's like bright colors and expensive things, and they have a couple of intimate moments, one memorable sequence on LSD. But otherwise, it's just a lot of murky shadows and this woman wondering what I'm doing here and how much time has passed. That's another interesting thing about the movie is by the time it's over and they divorce, you realize how many years have passed and how understimulating her life has been. And that's something I reflect upon and think is is very well done. Also something I like about this movie, even though I thought I hated it, do you know what the last mm. song they play in the movie is? I Will Always Love You, well, Dolly Parton. Here's hated the, it. You know, here's the thing. When they played that as she's walking out of the uh, Graceland for the last time, and it ends, by the way, she just leaves Graceland and there's no coda. That's the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. She, the women in the house are saying goodbye to her and none of the men who run the estate are there. It's, it's a very telling, interesting moment. But I will always love you. By the time she's leaving this relationship, it's such hell. It doesn't feel thematically appropriate for them to play I will always love you. Like, I didn't get it. But I will say there's a real life irony about using that song that I think is interesting and it's twofold. One, 
Apparently on the steps of the courthouse when they really did get divorced, Elvis sang that song to her. So it was like a, a, mm-hmm. a shout out to that, which is kind of interesting. But more importantly, Elvis in real life wanted to record I Will Always Love You, which was, of course, a Dolly Parton song at the time. And the mm-hmm. uh, night before he was supposed to record it, Colonel Tom Parker said to Dolly Parton, well, you know, of course, Elvis gets half the publishing or more of anything he records. And she tearfully turned them down, being like, well, that's the most important song in my catalog. I can't give that up. And I thought using that song for those sort of in the know was pointing out the fact that if Elvis loves something, he gets to possess it, which I feel like is a big theme of the movie. So I liked it on that level, even though I didn't like it instinctively because it didn't gel thematically with what was happening in that moment. Well, it's a beautiful moment emotionally if the movie has a footnote. Yeah, right. Yes, you're right. They did you not know. explain it. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I mean, I, I love, obviously, I love shit like that within film. And I love, um, you know, the hidden deeper meaning in that. And that would be beautiful to read in an essay. Or it was lovely hearing you say it right now. But exactly. it doesn't hit in the movie. <laughs> no, you know? it doesn't it make doesn't enough hit sense. hit in the movie yeah. emotionally. It doesn't tack. I would actually have loved to see the scene of him sing that. I would actually have loved the scene with him trying to get the Dolly Parton song and then that hits at the end um, and shows about his possessiveness with other women. I think that that would have actually been a nice track. And I feel like the film, for me, lacks where we don't know enough about what is going on in the world and how she's being perceived mm-hmm. for yes, a lot do, of it. We, to we don't hit. know anything about how she is perceived by the outside world. That yes. I think is true. And yes, it is very interesting to me that I was looking up articles on Elvis and Priscilla, and when they're married, the headlines are Elvis marries longtime family friend. So it actually mm. gives you the impression that people didn't know who the fuck this girl was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she sort of just emerges. And that's why they were doing a lot of, well, you can't be by the gates, you know, like people can't see you. And that makes sense then why there are all these public romances and other engagements happening in the press. And I loved how she was seeing a lot of that in the tabloids. But then where the movie sort of lost me is after she does get put into the public eye and is married to him, right? There's no media blitz around her. There is then no her seeing herself in the press and the tabloids and now seeing how they're talking about her the way that she used to see the world talk about Elvis. You know, Mm. there's no sort of twisting of the funhouse mirror for me. And that's why the film just feels very insular. It would work, I feel like, as a one-act play. As a movie, it feels very, you know, it could have been a doll's house, but it feels very just, I don't know, it falls apart for me at the end. It tries to hit a gut punch that I just think isn't there. It just right. sort of ends. Right. It's one of my least favorite Sofia Coppola films. I do think it's a strength of the movie that you don't know that much about Elvis other than he's a perceived phenomenon. Of course. Um, you know, because Elvis, like, for like, sure. like, like they don't get into like what he's recording really. Like the only glimpse you have is they do have a scene where like everybody at Graceland is watching the comeback special. But like to me, mm. that's a memorable scene only because it shows you how much time has passed. Like that he needs a comeback. Right. You know, and it's different from when he's um uh in the army in the late fifties in Germany. And we that's we realize how much time has passed. But mm. um but uh no, I just like that there's an enigma about him because we don't know what force is propelling him to be as sort of power hungry or suddenly temperamental as he as he is and that makes it more interesting once they have real conflicts and we realize oh this is an extremely joyless uh 
marriage with like no upside. I will say I'm surprised to see a bunch of critics say things like, oh, you know, they had this um, joyless marriage and he was possessive and he cheated on all these people and they name all the people he cheated with, like Anne margaret and Nancy and Sinatra, mm-hmm. et cetera. But you can tell there's like a real bond between them. I don't think I ever really saw that. Like to me, the point no. of this was she got recruited to live with him and he got to sort of treat her as he wanted and then change how she looked when, uh, you know, he got sick of the old Priscilla and needed a new Priscilla to keep himself interested and how she was basically an adornment to his life rather than a person. Of course. I mean, I never saw any of the love in it. I actually thought that the romantic aspects with Priscilla in Elvis were goofy. <laughs> and I think that this is a more realistic portrayal of the of their relationship. Uh, probably, I mean, it's based on her own memoirs. And it just still, emotionally, it just wasn't there for me. I think mm-hmm. the ending of the film really just doesn't kill it for me. And I also feel like largely... You know, with you not realizing how much time passes in the movie, I was acutely aware of how much time was passing the last <laughs> in your life half yeah. of that film. <laughs> yeah, in my yeah. life, yeah. I was like, "Baby, where, where are we going here?" Yeah, I will say what's interesting though about their relationship. It makes me now want to see a Michael Jackson film because it isn't it ironic that their daughter ended up in a similar relationship with Michael Jackson. Right. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. And sort Lisa Marie like, is a character in this, by the out. way. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and you're just plucked out to then totally. be the very public wife of this megastar. And I wonder what Priscilla thought of that relationship while it was occurring and what Lisa Marie thought of that relationship while it was occurring, etc. It, it would be interesting to do a similar movie, a sequel of sorts, um, with that relationship. Well, I mean, I think you don't even have to ask for that. There's no way we're not getting a Lisa Marie Presley movie after the of after her unexpected death. And of course, that remains a, a particular 90s phenomenon that has not been matched. I mean, the, the look on their faces as they kiss at that MTV Awards show is just, nobody was supposed <laughs> to see that, let alone the children, let alone the children. <laughs> Can't you imagine... Lisa being horrified that Bubbles is going to kill their kid. <laughs> also, if I'm why not mistaken, why is there a monkey running around this? Why is there a monkey running around this place? And then also, the whole Neverland Ranch aspect of it basically right. being a larger, creepier Graceland. Totally. And also, I think a big part of Michael Jackson's psyche was about kind of becoming Elvis Presley. Like, he wanted to emulate yeah. certain things about There's his There's a grandeur. lot of Elvis imagery yeah. in his work, especially in the Leave Me Alone video. Right, yes. Oh, a great video. Um, oh, very underrated in the Michael Jackson amazing. catalog. I, yeah. think, I think that's probably in my top three of songs. It's it's The, the production on that song is excellent. Just stop dogging me around. That was the beginning of like the angry Michael era, you know, when you got the they yeah. don't care about us, et cetera. Um, yeah. But uh, no, I'm. Uh, you don't have to be curious about that movie. We almost certainly get that movie. And I want to say quickly, I think the best of MySpace ever was Lisa Marie Presley's recollection of her time with Michael after he died. If you can find that post, that might be the best, the, the only reason we ever needed MySpace, that post right there. Who was in her top eight? <laughs> well, at the time, she was probably a Scientologist and, and and hadn't left yet. I used to love Lisa Marie Presley. Her song, Lights Out. We talked about this when mm-hmm. she died, anyway. Never mind the fact that he is... Isn't Elvis one of the first celebrities where 
there were just the continued rumors of him still being alive after he died. Right, right. Well, he had those particular Michael-level fans where there's a certain, shall we say, mm. disconnect from reality that, you know, is, I guess, half of America now. So, uh... <laughs> He was... You could not, in the 90s, read the tabloids without seeing a new photo of Elvis spotted like he was Bigfoot. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, of course, the era of... Elvis impersonators in Vegas being huge for some reason. God, yeah. We really, like, bastardized his musical legacy in a way, and he really became, you know, to borrow a term I already used this episode, a Macy's float. Well, you know what? He stole a lot from black people, and one thing about those tables, <laughs> they turn. turn. Right, right, right. <laughs> I've heard that one. Ah. Uh. Anyway, shout out to Jacob Elordi, though. Great. He is really, really impressing me. I mean, I think he should, he deserves an Oscar nomination for this movie, personally. Yeah, and I hope that the Academy doesn't feel weird that there was just an Elvis and they almost gave an Oscar to Austin Butler because he is miles above Austin in this film. I have to say, which is, I mean, like, I, I thought I enjoyed Austin last year in that movie that I basically disliked, but... um. I like it. I like it. I think for a Baz Luhrmann film, it's exactly what you fucking want. Right. And I would prefer he just do less all the time. So what I would want, what I want <laughs> a, is not to see it. As opposed to for Sofia Coppola film, this did not give me the promise of what I usually get from her best films. Right. Yeah. There was no kookiness to this, which I feel like you usually get from a, a Sofia Coppola movie. None this time. Yeah. Anyway, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, what's your Keep It this week? Um, mine's going to be a familiar one, especially to fans of this very esteemed podcast network. Uh, mm. You ever get a text because you you know signed up for a political campaign once upon a time? You don't remember when. And suddenly you have a text that says, Hi there, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I need to talk to you about something important. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm sorry. There's one thing Joseph Gordon-Levitt needs to do is not talk to me. I, maybe if he comes on Keep and talks about whatever's happening at hitrecord.com or whatever's happening, sure. But I don't need you telling me what's up with Adam Schiff because Adam Schiff has told me 75,000 times, motherfucker. Girlfriend, I know what's up to moment to moment with this person. It's like Clarissa Explains It All starring this bitch. It's the night he came home. Right. Okay? He's Michael Myers. <laughs> Adam Schiff, H2O. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Those are so... Weird. The, the the personalization of them now, where you have the people actually begging in your um, inbox, and, and it's personalized where it's, hey, Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Hey, girl. AOC here. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, faggot? It's AOC. I've been thinking about you. And also, Adam Schiff. <laughs> no, it's like you were saying yeah, I, earlier. It's like soon it'll be, hey, it's your mom. I've just been thinking about you. It's been a couple of days since we talked. But also, I would love to talk about Adam Schiff. <laughs> just full lies soon. And then you wonder if the Democratic Party has, like, has your mom kidnapped. Right. Yeah, right. Is Debbie Wasserman still a part of it? She would do it. I know it. <laughs> uh, good keep it. Yeah, thank you. Basically, succinct. Keep it. Yes, right. Succinct. It's just a little, it's a little annoying and a little creepy and a little 
they always get your goat. You're like, oh, you you almost made me think. It's it's like when you realize you uh you get a number from a phone call and it doesn't say spam risk, but it's an unfamiliar number, and then you pick it up and it's still a telemarketer. It's like, how did they get around spam risk? They're smart. <laughs> All right, my keep it this week. Somehow this debate is always happening online, but mm-hmm. people are once again debating whether or not you should tip. Oh God, what? But especially egregious now is people saying that they do not tip DoorDash delivery people, which is insane to me. Because what? first of all, first of all, if you have money to go out to eat or you have money to order delivery, you have money to tip. And that really involves one or two fucking dollars that you're giving to workers. And I'm not wading into this whole, but we should pay workers more. I'm saying, have you met capitalism? Right. Have right, you met right. this country? It's not happening. And so if you want to participate in that and be an asshole, well, then you can't get mad when you don't get paid enough at work. And you can't be an asshole about other things when they happen to you. But I don't know. There's something extra about people saying they don't tip on DoorDash, which is so lazy to me, but also evil because and makes no sense because a DoorDash order is you ordering a $5 meal from somewhere that ends up being $32 with all the tips and fees added to DoorDash, which do not go to the delivery person. Right. So you ha- if you, you're not broke if you're ordering from DoorDash all the fucking time because you're spending, you're spending like three times what you should be paying on a meal. It would cost you less to fucking walk to the store, get that meal to go, and then put $2 into a jar to tip someone. Right. Well, I mean, it it sort of speaks to the fact that I think people have this like very conservative instinct about tips because it's money you don't necessarily have to give. So it feels like Mm -hmm. when you do give it, it's like they're eking money out of you or something. That said, Mm -hmm. you are stiffing somebody who needs the money. It's just ridiculous. Right. Meanwhile, it's like, are you really excited to give extra, extra money to DoorDash? I don't know. It's just, that's very bizarre to me. Also, people who do not tip, how does your food taste? Right. How about that? Do you get it? Do, do, do they throw it on your roof or something? <laughs> do they take bite to your fries? Do they spit into your unsweetened iced tea from McDonald's that you got the day after you were hungover from Halloween? I'm just wondering. Yeah. I'm just wondering here because not tipping people who are handling your food is a very risky behavior. It's also interesting because, of course, normally this would be the kind of stiffing like you you wouldn't voice that you do it. Like I, if my best friends acted this way, I wouldn't really know it because I don't see whether they tip or not. But to put it on social media um, and people outing themselves, that's a particular um, version of arrogant that's extremely disgusting people and just stupid. So pr- people are so proud of being gutter. Yeah. Like <laughs> they're so like boastful about being like gutter ball trash online and it is shocking to me that there's no humility there's no embarrassment that people have anymore when it comes to these things it's it's shocking also i get food delivered all the time that just is unspeakable behavior to me you know what i'm a little wary of in la you see these like little travel robots walking around giving food to everybody Mm. all the time when you see one of them it's pretty cute looks like r2d2 you know makes a little beep beep it has a little name on the side it'll be like oscar or something when you see four of those in a cluster on the street, girl, now I'm, I know I'm in the director's cut of AI, motherfucker. I know Kubrick died for this. 
all these Rosie the Robots yes. chasing you. Right. And they're all kind of facing each other and like getting around each other to go like from intersection to intersection. It looks like Mario Kart, but from a dystopia. I don't see those in New York. No, it's a very LA and maybe West Hollywood specific phenomenon. Yeah, I think I think you see you, you see a delivery robot in New York on the street. Somebody has taken that. Also, that's just a prostitute. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just walking around. <laughs> I want to see the robot smoke. Is that impo- is that important to anybody? That'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> like full Vivian Ward from Pretty Woman. <laughs> There's your dystopian novel, smoking. Yeah. Sex worker robots. <laughs> they they sound like they'd be my friends. I want to get into this. Yeah. Um. What what do we call that movie? Pretty um, pretty mainframe. Yeah. I'm uh, sure. I mean, we will workshop that, and that will not be the title. But thank you so much for your getting the conversation going. It's the working title. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to Allison Williams for joining us this week, and uh, that's our show. We'll see you next time. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience.